Hello, everybody. It is time once again to talk to you guys about Fangoria. Their kick-ass magazine always explores every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. And speaking of Fangoria, I want to point out uh, that our benevolent overlords over there recently hired a brand new ad sales rep by the name of Marissa Mirabal, a good friend of mine. Uh, been working with her for several years now, and um, we're really excited to have her leading the charge over there. But we wanted to make uh, all of our listeners aware because... She's the one that can place ads for your book, movie, or whatever the hell else it is that you're selling on this show. So drop her a line at Marissa, that's M-A-R-I-S-A, at Fangoria.com. She will take care of you, provide you with rates, and make sure that you are getting promoted on what I think, can we agree, is uh, one of the preeminent Stephen King podcasts on the internet, Eric? Totally top 20 at the very least. At the least. I was going to say 30, but I, I like your confidence on that. So with all of that said, on with the show. On with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is going to break. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. We are extremely excited to welcome one of my favorite people for his first ever appearance on the show. He's the Oscar-winning director behind all your favorites like The Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, The Devil's Backbone, my personal favorite, Kronos, Crimson Peak. Pacific Rim and the first two Hellboys, he has a new movie on the horizon called Nightmare Alley, which hits screens December 17th, woo. and now he's woo. And now he's here to talk about Killer Clowns with us. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Guillermo del Toro to the KingCast stage. Happy to be here, man. Very oh, excited man. to have you here. For you sure. Must, you must be excited. My understanding is that you have just turned in Nightmare Alley. You're done, yeah? Well, I'm done to a point. I mean, I turned in... Uh, I, I'm, I'm still doing the... A, a few of the color correction versions, like a, mm-hmm. I need to do a, an HD version. I need to do a, a, a special color pass that I want to do for a, another version that we're going to hopefully release alternatively later. I have mm-hmm. to do a, a, the home video, uh, final approvals. But yeah, basically 99.9% <laughs> How do you feel? You must be a relief when you get to that as of, point. As though, of right? last week, which is crazy. Before we get started, there's there's one quick question I wanted to ask you, and I, I, I I'm not the only one with this question. I've seen it come up a lot on mm-hmm. social media in relation to your name, and that is with the ongoing uh, relationship you have with Netflix. Do you think yes. there's any chance that we that you might loop back around to at the Mountains of Madness at some point? Well, listen, uh, I, that was, <laughs> take a wild guess which were the first projects I 
presented, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went through the cupboards and found Monte Cristo and Mantas on Madness. Those were a couple of the ones I presented first. The thing with Mountains is the screenplay I uh, co-wrote 15 years ago mm -hmm. is not the screenplay I would do now. So mm -hmm. I need to do a rewrite, uh, not only to scale it down somehow, but because back then I was trying to bridge the scale of it with uh, elements that made it somewhat... Uh, be able to go through the, the studio machinery, you know? Yeah, blockbustery. Blockbustery. Right. And, and I think I don't need to reconcile that anymore. Mm -hmm. I would I, agree. I can go to a, 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 a far more esoteric, weirder, smaller version of it, you know, where I, where I can go back to, to some scenes that were left out, some of the big set pieces I, I designed, I, for example, I have no appetite for. Uh, like, I, I, I've, I've already done this or that giant set piece. I, I feel like going into a, a weirder direction. Uh, I, I know a, a few things will stay. I know the, the, the ending we had mm -hmm. is one of the most uh, intriguing, weird, unsettling endings <laughs> for me. So, you know, the, uh, there's about four horror set pieces that I love in the original script. So, you know, it would be my hope. I, I mean, I certainly get a phone call every six months uh, by Don Murphy <laughs> calling me. <laughs> Are we doing this or what? Are you doing this next or what? And, and I always, uh, you know, I say I have to take the time to rewrite it. And right now I'm writing, uh, developing two screenplays, one of which I think will be right away next. And, I'm busy finishing Pinocchio, producing mm -hmm. Cabinet of Curiosities in Toronto. Right. And, and I, I, I'm settling down of the post-pandemic sort of domino because everything mm -hmm. that I had spaced out for three years, all of a sudden became all, the deliveries came all at the same time. <laughs> right. I've been here with this, with, you know, so, but it is my hope. Look, I, I you know the story. I wear the ring uh, of the Miskatonic University until I make the movie, mm -hmm. and I'll wear it until 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 that happens. And maybe past it happening, I actually like it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's grown into you now. It must be part of your your body. Right. right. I, I grown, true Lovecraft. I, I have grown into it. I tell you that. <laughs> right now, if I remove it, my my finger has a, a pre-pandemic waistline. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really hope you. We really hope you get the chance to do that because I, I personally be, believe there's no one else to do that movie but you. And I, I loved your original script for it. Um, I and I really love the idea of an even more esoteric version. So, God yeah. willing, we uh, we get to see that. You think I, I, you'd invite I, Cruz back for the new version? You know, I think the age the age has changed now. Uh, Tom mm -hmm. Tom is about 15 years older. Yeah. I think the age uh, of Lake, you know, it, it would be it would be a different a different cast, and I would I would go if I can. I would go for uh, mostly unknowns, mm -hmm. you know, and and make make the journey the star. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I look, we are as it is. I produce, I don't direct. 
cabinet of curiosity, but 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 we have three or four of the stories are either completely Lovecraftian or by Lovecraft. Yes, mm. you know we we have a a, a couple, and, and my interpretation of Lovecraft may be different than the the directors doing it, but I, we're trying to certainly. Uh, stick to to the tenets of of those stories, and and I I really I really love I love Lovecraft. I I I think it when you adapt it, it has to be period. Mm-hmm. When you adapt it, it has to deal with the the basics uh, of the mythology. I think the most successful of his stories are perennials, mm-hmm. and Mountains is one of them. Absolutely. Let's be real. Like no Lovecraft movie has ever been made where someone of your stature was bringing their talent to bear on it. I think. I think, and I have said this many times. Alien is the the best Lovecraft movie, <laughs> right? So far. And and it has and it has everything. You know, there's a lot of it that is very Mountains of Madness. It's mm-hmm. a, a vessel that uh, finds uh, an abandoned quote unquote city. In which the skeletons of the creators, uh, or the remains of the creators, are there, and they find a shape-shifting entity that was created that then takes them over. And basically, that that's as far as it goes. In the original Ovanon script, there was even a wall of hieroglyphics that explained wow. the, the life cycle, and and that wall of hieroglyphics is verbatim what they find in at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, and then, then Prometheus completes that, <laughs> right? Yeah. In Covenant that, too. Yeah, yeah, and, and and then parts of the thing, John Carpenter's, are right. tremendously Lovecraftian. And then is uh, uh, the Mouth of Madness, which has great. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah look, I love that. Yeah. It definitely, I think I would, I would find, I would leave the world better than I found it if I did. <laughs> If I did the big scale Lovecraft adaptation, yeah, I would. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. But we aren't here to talk about Lovecraft. We're here to talk about King. So, this is a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what is your Stephen King origin story? Which is to say, when did he first come onto your radar as a, a presence in pop culture? Was it a book? Was it a yeah. movie? What? No, what was book, it? The books. I, I was there way before the movies came on. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I was, uh, I was always, uh, my first book that I bought with my own money and I was very, very young and I bought it on a supermarket of a, of a paperback rack. It was an anthology by Forrest J. Ackerman of mm-hmm. the best stories, but you know, very early in my collecting life, uh, I bought a paperback of Carrie. I think I had not seen the movie. But it was before, uh, maybe it was after the Palma shot the movie, but I had not seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's a possibility. And I read Carrie, and what moved me so much was this, because I was an adolescent and I was sort of a weird adolescent, you know, if, if, if there is any other kind. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I felt identified with Carrie so profoundly, and I I really thought, he was great. He was. He is great at portraying outsiders. Right. You know, when you think of Harold in The Stand, you know mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the ultimate outsider little portraiture. But the, 
you think about a sociopathic kid in different seasons and and uh, mm. people. Yeah, right. uh, and I and I think that uh, you you can keep going on, but he understands that moment of life so well that it. I I went back and I said, what else do you have by this guy? And mm -hmm. then I I read, uh, I got Salem's Lot, mm -hmm. and I uh, my mother said you gotta clean the pool, uh, and I said okay. <laughs> I, I, I went out with the cleaning pool stuff, and she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "As soon as I finish this episode, that's this chapter." And <laughs> by the end of the, the sun set, and I had my body was completely burned. My my, <laughs> my, my glasses, I had the negative space of uh, tan marks on my of my glasses, uh -huh. and I had finished the book. I I, I, I read it in one day. Pool unclean. Pool completely unclean, yeah. <laughs> and so have you kept up with him over the years, his writing? Yes, yes I have. Uh, up, up until recently. Uh, mm. I, I kept I kept up uh, with him until the second time he, quote, unquote, retired. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> and then I read. I still, I still buy the books and I still read. I particularly love his short stories. Yes, but uh, but I love. I look. I I I think <clears throat> he he writes so beautifully and so efficiently. Uh, so I read. Uh, I read everything uh, I can, and and I try to keep up. But uh, but the short stories uh, night shift uh, was such a revelatory collection. You know, for me it was. Oh, this this is the next step after Richard Madison is what I mean. Mm. By, by then, mm -hmm. I had I had collected Richard Madison, Charles Beaumont. I had I had read everything I could get my hands on, and I, and to me, there is a very beautiful escalation. There is, um, you know, the classical Gothic story. Then you go through two of the modernizations of things like. Uh, I think that with uh, Shirley Jackson, certainly, and and Henry James, in a, in a in a strange way, and then you go to uh, Madison, bringing all those horrors into urban and suburban America, you know, and mm -hmm. and, and and then for me the next evolution is a King because Madison would uh, put them in a a real city with avenues, with light, uh, traffic lights, with uh, this and that. But then Stephen King would bring a particular brands, Ding Dongs or Twinkies or... Uh, <laughs> Pepsi, very notoriously yeah, Pepsi. Pepsi. He loves Pepsi. Yeah. He would bring all that... Uh, it's not product pleasant, it's part of your most... Uh, the vulgarity of reality, which right. I, I advocate when I'm producing or directing... I always say the if your baseline needs to be uh, some form of vulgar reality because then the extraordinary uh, sort of blooms from there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Now, real quick, before we start talking about it, did you read Revival? No, I haven't read Revival. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my goodness. It, You're going to lose your shit for that book, dude. It's, uh, I, it's king at his bleakest. I hope it I is hold to my shit, but I'll read it. <laughs> you, yeah, he, no, yeah, he, I'm, I'm pretty confident you'll lose your shit. 
Yeah, like, all of your I, shit. That kept me that the ending of that book kept me awake at night for a full month. And I'm the guy that like I you know, Vespi and I have absorbed enough horror that you know, we don't get scared often by mm-hmm. by Stephen oh, King, but oh it's God. terrifying. I, I tell you this and I and I mean it. I will read it this weekend. Nothing. Go I clean a pool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get it in before you have to call your mom on Sunday. But you know, you know what is funny is this is what I miss the most. Uh, because for me in the horror field, I, I get excited about new directors often because I I see such talent. But the the original scare, like when I read the some of the Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu stories when I when I read the boogeyman in night mm-hmm. shift uh, right. I got so scared I used to get the rats the cemetery rats by Henry Henry Kuttner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know there's that original fear is so I miss it so much I would love to recuperate it well, you know you know the movie the the novel that I would I would have killed to adapt and I and I, I know there's two versions of it and I still think maybe in a deranged universe, I get to do it again one day is a pet cemetery. Oh, man. Because it not only has the the very best uh, final couple of lines of the, mm. the King Over, but, but it's, it, is, uh, I, it, it scared me when I was uh, a, a young man. And as a father, I now understand it. Uh, better than I ever would have. And, and it scares me a hundred times more, but I, I would love to love to be able to do it. I think before revival, the thing, the last thing King wrote that really like scared the shit out of me was the, uh, was crouch end in nightmares mm-hmm. and dreamscapes, which, which is, is his a, most explicitly Lovecraftian thing. Which, that he's and I, I think it's an homage to Ramsey Campbell. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Sure. And and Revival's sort of, it's sort of, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's, <laughs> it's got some Lovecraftian, you know, it's got some Lovecraftian tones to it that I think you would respond very strongly to. Campbell, Campbell also scared me the most, but you know, the Pet Cemetery, when he says a cold hand falls on Louis' shoulder and, and he says this unforgettable description, Rachel's voice was grating full of dirt Jesus (laughs) and and says darling you go ho 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 for me me that that, uh, the best scene in the book in that book is when he opens Gage's coffin and for a second he thinks the the head is gone because this uh, black fungi from the grave has grown like like a fuss over the the kid's face. Oh my god! And and I I think you 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 cannot spare those details and and think that you're honoring that book. One of the right. things one of the things I thought about Pet Cemetery that we would do in post is uh, when the dead return, when Gage returns, I would spend an inordinate amount of money uh, <laughs> taking taking out the sheen from his eyes. Mm. Uh, so that the eyes are dull, that, right? And that you don't notice it. You don't need to notice it, but there is no reflection because the thing—if you've ever stared in a, into a dead person—the the the tragic thing is the eyes become flesh. They become yeah. dry flesh, like a hand or a 
or a cheek, you know? Yeah, totally. It'd be a really unsettling effect. I, I apologize for the background noise, but there's a leaf blower in the next house. <laughs> there's nothing <laughs> it, I can do. It's all right. It's it's recycle day in my neighborhood, and, and the recycle truck is going up and down, banging shit outside my window too. So we're we, we have dealing <laughs> dueling uh, background noises here. Yes. Um. So we we should. You're the the title when when I uh, approached you for this that you were like let's talk about it and then you're like let's talk about it <laughs> and I'm like hell yeah let's talk about it this is my personal favorite King book and it's one that that uh, I read at a very young age and then it's one that I revisited later and kind of like how you were talking about Pet Cemetery where you got something else out of it as a uh, as an adult you know as somebody with with uh, children. Um, I had a similar thing where, you know, it's fascinating to me, the duality of this book as, uh, and I'd love to have this be the jumping off point talking about it is because as a kid, I was the age of the kids versions of all the losers um, yeah. reading it, it for the first time. And then when I revisited it, I was the age they were when they came back to, to fight it. And yeah. I had two completely different reactions to the the book. I loved them both, you know, both you know, iterations of what they meant to me, you know, what it meant to me as a child and what it meant to me later but it is very distinct can you be more specific well a lot of it just it it was more is more the point of view sharing the point of view of the children yeah um where as a kid it didn't affect me one one iota of them going off and do i'm like yes of course you go fight the monsters and the adults aren't going to help you and as an adult you know as a 40 year old reading it i was going you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have kids, but I'm very close to my nephews and my, my nephews were younger, you know, around that age when I was rereading it, like in that kind of 10 to 12 thing. Well, and the thought of them going off and like, even just playing in, in near a sewer, was just like that, you know, fuck that. And like my adult instinct <laughs> came in and just like, no, gotta, you know, get them away from that. They're in no way prepared for dealing with this. I wouldn't even let them, you know, ride their bike, you know, over into the shopping center near my house, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've said this many times, but a group of friends and I, uh, when we were in, in, in school, we, we used to explore the sewers mm-hmm. of, of our city. And I always felt uh, that that stayed with me, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it stayed with me in a way that I, I felt this is where, uh, and without, without knowing Carl Jung or the Jungian mythology, I, I just thought this is where where everything is possible. Still in an urban, still in an urban environment, this is the catacombs of mm. the castle, you know. And mm-hmm. and, I, and it is very Jungian. And in fact, and in fact, uh, I mean, I I have always held uh, to be truth that it is almost a sister book to to the body to stand by mm-hmm. me, like Carl Reiner uh, movie. It's a it's a sister book to it, in a strange right. way, and because um, it's about bonding. Yeah, you know, I, I, at I, that I, age. Sorry, Rob Reiner, not Gal Reiner. Yeah, I didn't want to correct you. I was just going to edit it out, but you found yeah. it, so no, I'll leave this on. I was going to be polite too. No, uh, so uh, I I think the the body is uh, Pennywise is the train, and Pennywise is death. Ultimately, ultimately, that's what what it is. Right. Uh, it's beyond evil. It's things. It's all those things you don't understand when you're a kid, and all those things that are in store. And when you're a kid, there is no sense of uh, the future. There is a huge sense of despair, because you're basically born 
to a different species. Uh, adults are not the same species as kids. As kids, mm-hmm. right. they they are just like a completely different, mm-hmm. strangely functioning tribe of nincompoops that, that, <laughs> have created, that have created completely frustrating lives for themselves with rules that make no sense to you as a as a freshman uh, in the human species, you know? And you try to figure those rules out, and the more you do that, the less you understand. And 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 this is why horror is so powerful for me, because it tells you, you know what? These are the things they don't talk about. Right. These are the things they don't want to... They, they keep quiet for themselves, and they don't share with you, and those include death, corruption, uh, the, the mere idea that you are uh, matter and you will decompose, all these things that are, unfortunately or fortunately, you can see them on, as roadkill or you can see them when a pet dies. And this this specter of uh, eventually Pennywise will get you. <laughs> and, and you know what? It will. It will. No matter how good a life you lead, no matter how you wake up at four in the morning and go jogging, Pennywise will get you. Because Pennywise, Pennywise, Pennywise is dead. And, and that's why the component uh, in the body, the component that it makes it so tragic is the fact that the body is a little bit ridiculous. The body mm-hmm. is odd. And, and, and Rob Reiner did an amazing thing with that. He, he did it with the eyes and the expression. And, and it's just so. So there is something odd. Because that, that, that the thing... Whenever somebody died in my family and they would hold an open casket and they would say, you got to go pay your respects, mm-hmm. I, I, I was so afraid of that. The, 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 the other thing I would link with Stephen King is if you have read Gahan Wilson's Nuts, uh, mm. and if you haven't, please buy one on eBay today and go to the funeral. The, the boy, the, the protagonist of that comic strip goes to a funeral hmm. and, and sees the kid in the casket. And that was my experience. They'd, all the dead had something ridiculous going on. And then <laughs> I, I worked next door to a morgue when I was a teenager. I, wor- I, I volunteered in a mental institution that was next to a morgue and a cemetery. Uh, and, and, and <laughs> that the, explains so much, Guillermo. Well, it, it, it was it's the, civil, the civilian hospital in Guadalajara. Is next no. to a, a Victorian cemetery, and the morgue was there. And, and <laughs> all, all, all the dead, is very, they're very strange. This idea that kids should not know about it, which makes it even more secret, is no matter what you say. Uh, and that's why also Rod Serling uh, understood this also. When you see the, the Messiah on Mud Street in Night Gallery, right. it's, 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 it's a really interesting book. And if you consider it, it is linked to many more books than, than the bodies. One of those uh, is a consolidation of many of the strands, narrative strands. It related to the boogeyman in Night Shift, in a way. Mm. You know, comes out of the closet and into the sewers to... to, <laughs> To open the book, you know, right? Yeah, he King has played with the glamour, uh, which is what he labels Pennywise as yes. in in the book. He's played with this idea, even the more recent, uh, like outsider 
um, the creature and the outsider, it mm-hmm. feels like an offshoot of, of Pennywise and feels like an offshoot of that, that glamor thing. And yeah, and you're right. Like the, the boogeyman, you know, there, there's all these, it feels like they're all in the same family, which is something that I always appreciate about King too, is that he just makes everything kind of. And I, I look, I, and the, the thing that he does that is impossible to replicate easily. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still bet I could do a good pet cemetery. <laughs> but 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 but, but uh, it would not be easy. It would be very very hard, because one of the things he does, uh, for example, is he says the gauge thing, mm. gauge things. He doesn't call him just gauge. Is the gauge thing, and and that adjective, that composite, just is very hard to match with specific visuals because all the all it is telling you is there's something small that is off that makes gauge a thing mm-hmm. you cannot just put a kid in there right you know and put him in a little top hat sorry i love i love mary lambert's movie but yeah it does it does lose a little something whenever you see gauge at the end and it's just you know that toddler he's just a toddler you know and in the makeup the stuff that i thought was really effective in that actually was when you had the animatronic or the the puppet version that's like biting on uh uh, what's his name? Uh, Judd. You, you know, know where th- then it became a little weird. I, think, I mean, I, 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 what I quote you, what, what I quote you of uh, Pet Cemetery, I quote you from memory, so I may yeah. be faulty. But if I remember right in the book, the 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 skull on Gage is slightly misaligned. Right. Like they yeah, I remember that too. Him, but they don't patch him very well. That is a a very subtle effect. Be incredibly hard to pull off. You're a guy who I feel like has a really good handle on what is and it is is not scary. I'm I'm curious what your take is on clowns. Are you afraid of clowns? Of Are you? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What what scares you about clowns? Well, it's it's extremely simple. I mean, there there's a reason why everybody finds them scary. There is the first thing is they're almost like the kabuki makeup of a ghost, mm-hmm, right? And then, then their mouth is a red gash, right? <laughs> it's not right. Exactly inviting. And now, there is one thing kids sense immediately, and that is creepy vibes and sadness. And 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 whenever you are in front of a clown when you're a kid, you know, a that's creepy, and b there's an horrible sadness behind the whole act. I have never, ever, ever, ever laughed at a clown. And I don't care. I don't, I don't care if they're Cirque du Soleil or if they are the most sophisticated French clowning school examples. I, 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 I've never, I can't. I mean, if you think about the pantomime, there's masters like Laurel and Hardy, which could, because I know Stan Laurel was a big student of clown clown pantomime, and in fact, he he owned a book that was uh, called, I think, Clowning and Pantomime that he gave uh, that, that he gave to George Stevens when George Stevens uh, was a, a camera cranker and not a famous director. And I, I got the book, I bought the book, and I and I read it, and uh, the physicality of clowning is amazing. The actual pratfalls, the technique for a pratfall. Uh, Buster Keaton uses them phenomenally, but the makeup, man. The makeup, <laughs> it's just the makeup. 
that's that's the key. The the makeup and the fact that their bodies have strange proportions. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I imagined the toes inside those shoes, <laughs> <laughs> and I I I was like, horrified in a deep deep level. I said, "Why is the shoe shaped like that? How 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 does the foot looks like when they remove that?" So you thought they had like. Fred Flintstone feet? No, like, I, thought, I thought they had like rats feet with like really long and crooked toes. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and, and I still think that, by the way, that would make a fantastic scene. <laughs> <laughs> Some offshoot of something wicked this way comes. <laughs> right. I have a uh, uh, something that you mentioned a, a minute ago about the difficulty in adapting King um, and where he'll have a turn of phrase that like is evocative to your mind's eye, but maybe isn't like a one-to-one translation on the screen. And since we're talking about it, I'd like to point at something that I think that Andy Muschietti did very well with, um, especially chapter one, where he, he, what he does there that I think is kind of still undersung to this day is how closely he ties in dairy to Pennywise and how much of Pennywise is in the town and the townspeople and the adults. Totally. They're grotesque. Um, yeah, every adult is, like you said, grotesque and all the creepiness we mentioned of clowns and what you said of, you know, how kids can sense sadness and and things that are off. Every adult in the movie, uh, in his version of, of the movie, in Derry, is off. They, they're all possessed in some weird, small, tiny way by this evil that that uh, rests underneath the, the city, which is something yeah, that, that... That is very, very, very king. Uh, yes, so. First of all, we have the victim. One of the victims of King is evil places attract evil people. And, right. and, and he has this sort of more sinister version of Peyton Place where he says basically towns are corrupt. The small towns are big hells, you know? Right. And, and, and he, he always digs in the, uh, in, in the uh, sort of... Uh, adulteries and the addictions and the beatings and the abuses. Right. Uh, Salem's uh, Lot, for sure. Yeah, yeah oh, for, for sure. Uh, Salem's Lot is the biggest example that comes to mind. But if you think about <clears throat> the town in Needful Things, mm-hmm. that town is rife for an explosion. Yes. Yeah. Be- before the, the shop opens, you know, which, which by, by the way, Needful Things comes from a long tradition and that goes to something wicked or a circus of Dr. Lau, mm-hmm. which are things that come and expose the underpinnings of the town. Mm-hmm. Circus of Dr. Lau, which I think it could make a terrific, scary movie because the mm-hmm. book the book is very disturbing. You know, the book is very disturbing and, and very adult. Uh, the, 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 the movie can only hint at these things because it's, uh, it's George Powell and is yeah. family-friendly. But yeah, th- those are th- that. I think Andy nailed that. I, I I've always been very curious about what the other version was, uh, the Gary Fukunaga. Mm-hmm. But I think Andy, I, Andy killed it. Yeah, yeah. The Fukunaga one, at least the script is is. It feels like the script kind of broke the back of what the structure totally was. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and there there's a lot of things that survived through there. But I I just can't get over how perfectly not only did did andy um 
paced that movie impeccably. Uh, but he did all that great stuff. There's so much background horror, which I love, like just yeah. creepy things that you don't notice the first time, you know, kind of stuff. The, the big example is the, uh, the, at the library scene with Ben and there's that creepy lady that's staring at him and people being in an audience and seeing people react to that and other people not missing it and going, why are people like skittering yeah. right now? Like, I love that stuff. But you're right. Um, it, it, it is a necessity. Uh, and, and, and I think, if you go beyond his horror books, Dolores Claiborne has that. Right. Uh, I mean, I think I think he he is uh, very aware of the Peyton Place uh, Peyton Place's uh, mechanics of the town. In in Andy's version, is almost Lovecraftian in the sense that it's almost like something's crooked on on every perspective on the adult uh, right. world. You know, <clears throat> when the uh, original miniseries aired in '91 with Tim Curry. Yeah. Uh, did you catch that as a kid or, well, yeah. I guess you weren't a kid at that point, I, I, right? I was not a kid. And, and that's why, um, I have no, I have affection for, uh, Tim Curry's portrayal, but right. which, is, which he brought so much menace Oh yeah, to the part. I mean, he is very scary. I, I was not particularly fond of the, of the event miniseries because I was older and I didn't find it to be uh, as compelling as I would have liked it to be. But but uh, Tim Curry is phenomenal in it. One thing that, that you share in common uh, as storyteller with uh, Stephen King, Guillermo, is just how well you can get inside um, uh, the headspace and the viewpoint of, of children. Um, and you've had some great examples. Pan's Labyrinth is a perfect example. And mm-hmm. like I mentioned in the intro, like Devil's Backbone is probably my favorite movie still that that you've done. And mm-hmm. it's just one that I connect to. And I think it's probably because it reminds me the most of of King in a weird way. And, and you know, and I, I was, you know, I grew up, you know, suckling on the teat of Stephen King. Yeah, you know, that that's what storytelling is to me. But like, and it, it is a perfect example of, you know, those losers, the dynamic there is, um, it's well, just so involving, and and you share that with him. To me, to me, the the I mean, the, the when I was a kid, the first thing I read that made me realize somebody was writing something that understood kids was uh, John Stanley's Little Lulu. Uh, mm-hmm. When when Lulu tells uh, her little stories, and when Toby went into investigating and all that. The dialogue was really accurate to kids, blah, blah, blah. And then I read a couple of stories by H.H. Monroe, which uh, used to sign as Saki, you know. And Saki wrote, I remember uh, one of the stories uh, was about a girl, a little girl that was horribly, horribly good. And and I thought, I like that. I like horribly, horribly good. <laughs> then little by little, you know, I, I read... Uh, Obviously, I read the Lord of the Flies, uh, right. which, which uh, to a point uh, has been an influence in some of the uh, Stephen King vibe. Uh, I, I, and, mm-hmm. I, and, and that was that was the big, the other big difference for me. Bradbury Ray Bradbury wrote kids well, but it was um, they were not kids I could uh, relate, relate to completely. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, same. They were fantastic and great characters, but the the world they came from seemed uh, to have happened a hundred years before my time. The kids in Stephen King's world were sophisticated, vulnerable, 
they have uh, desires, they have flaws, they have yeah. uh, traumas. Uh, I could, I could, I could see myself in them. They were not idealizations of kids, and and I thought uh, this is interesting, and and it, it has. Uh, it left a big mark in me because also when you're a kid, adults, I think adults tend to make a caricature of two ages, old age and childhood hmm. and the teenage years too. And they think for some reason that all people are simple minded and funny and that kids are simple minded and funny. It's all, <laughs> and, and, and neither those both ages are hell. Number one, both <laughs> right. ages are hell and both ages are incredibly more complex. And and King understands this. He, he writes old people also really, really well, by the right. way. That's true. I agree with that. I wish we had multiple hours to dissect <laughs> uh, it with you, but we understand you're under a, a time constraint today. And I want to I want to make sure that we get time to talk a little bit about Nightmare Alley which yes. when this episode airs will be coming out very shortly thereafter. What can you what can you tell our listeners about this? Well, you know, each of each of the movies I tackle, whether I realize it before, during or after, they are slices of autobiography. You mm-hmm. know, they are pieces of my life in a way. Uh, I remember uh particularly how I needed to write sort of a I tried to define what love was with The Shape of Water. And Nightmare Alley reflects how anxiety permeated the last uh, few years mm-hmm. now, uh, in, in a very pervasive way. And in a very, it's almost like it, it's not a wave crashing against the rock. It's like mildew eating the rock away, you know? And the movie is really, really dark, really, really dark. But I think is as mature a movie as I can make at 57. You know, it is a, a very adult movie. It's a very personal reflection about the world and what it is to tell the truth and what it is to lie and what it does to you and the consequences of that. And 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 I, I thought it was, uh, uh, for some reason, I thought it was um, urgent for me to do. And and it started as a commitment of, oh, I don't know, 16 months maybe. And it has ended being a commitment of uh, about three and a half years. Jesus, good and, Lord. Uh, the entire endeavor meant not only coming back together onto a very difficult movie, but having the entire cast return after the pandemic was full on and implement the measures to allow the the endeavor to come to a good end. Right. And it is uh, visually probably the most intricate movie I've done. And, you know, the reason I like that you like Devil's Backbone and the reason why for so many years I have loved it too, almost at the top, you know, is because it's incredibly hard how simple that movie is. <laughs> right. It's extremely hard to execute that movie from the person executing it, I can tell you it was incredibly difficult. And, 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 but it doesn't show. It's not showy. You don't go, oh, look at that, or oh, look at that. But there is a, there's a serene uh, 
execution to it. And Nightmare Alley was uh, extremely difficult to execute to that level. For one of the things I did is uh, I wanted to to create a sense of it being a, a classical creation, like something following canons of the 30s and 40s, but of today. We started, uh, uh, Kim and I, we started obviously the screenplays and the and the movies of the past, but we didn't want to make a cinephile uh, artifact. We didn't mm. want to make it self-referential. We mm. didn't want it to... We have <clears throat> some homages to, to Strangers on a Train, Too Late for Tears, uh, Fallen Angel by Otto Preminger, but, but it was not a cinephile endeavor. It was uh, something that needed to feel alive, and I'm very, very proud of it. Well, no, we man. can't wait to see it. And if I may just very quickly tell you this, and I, I want it on record where people can hear it. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you as the executive producer of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark oh, for, for helping to ensure that the creature designs on that movie were yes. spot on. I just rewatched it last night. I fucking love that movie. Yes. You know, well, you, guys, you guys nailed it. And I, I hope to see another one. I really do. It's extremely Kingian, you know? Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It is it two point five. I guess. <laughs> I was thinking hey, that last spiders. night while there's I was spiders. watching it. Yeah, don't the, remind uh, me about the spiders. I don't want to talk about the spiders. <laughs> the idea, the idea that we I loved uh, was ultimately if we could uh, talk about uh, a moment where kids kids were being sent to war, not to return, and they were they were they were in a little town that seemed idyllic, but. These bosses would come in <laughs> and take the kids to a country nobody could pinpoint in the map. Mm-hmm. They never returned, and the reason they went there was stories that people told about why the war needed to happen. And I, I don't know if we manage all of that. That's what I wanted to 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 tackle as producer, but I wanted also to tackle kids that were very you know, foul-mouthed and weird and, uh, and, right. and uh, held their own. And, and, and it and real, like as real kids are. Yeah. As real kids are. And, and, and this is an inheritance uh, from the Kingian world. So thank you. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole racial undercurrent to oh. that movie that like, there's so much going on under the hood of that movie that is just, you don't find in, in my experience, YA horror movies, you know, no, the, it's, yeah, it's the perfect that. balance. Is is uh, everybody, everybody, or most of the kids in the movie have to live with what the adult world defines their gender or their race as? Mm. Uh, how how she needs to behave because she's a girl? How how people look at the Mexican kid that has a car and can drive around? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is these are things that are there, as you said, as an undercurrent, but they mm-hmm. are. And to me, uh, that's why the sheriff is not a good guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not the authorities. And, and that was the thing that I also, I was very impressed always with King. The institutions never came to the rescue, you know? Right. And, and, <laughs> that's true. And if I, and I, if I may, and then I need to go because yes. I have this other uh, urgent meeting on Zoom. But uh, um, the thing that we were talking about, the evolution, and as much as I love uh, the evolution of horror before King, Madison, who wrote incredible masterpieces like uh, 
The Shrinking Man, uh, mm-hmm. which which is a an existential sci-fi masterful piece. I Am Legend was amazing. All his short stories, Third from the Sun, Born of Man and Woman, you name it. You know the 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 fact is he seldom portrayed kids, mm-hmm. and I think uh, my lineage with the kids in King goes all the way to to Kill a Mockingbird in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this threshold of childhood broken by the imperfections of the real world, by how horrible the real world is around him, and 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 I, I'm very grateful that uh, that he did it. And when people say. Uh, he, or he used to say that they don't say it that much anymore, thankfully. Oh, he's a genre writer. I go, mm-hmm. he's a terrific writer, period. Period. And if, if, if anyone cannot see that, it's their loss. Right. Well, we agree as the hosts of a Stephen King podcast. <laughs> we think yes. he's pretty swell. <laughs> and thank right. you so much for being here today. We know you got to go. Uh, it's an honor to speak to you about King. And, and we hope you will... Uh, you're, you're the busiest human being I know, but uh, <laughs> but hopefully, you know, we'll we'll find time to get you back at some point. Let's make let's make a, let's make a deal. I'll come back and we'll talk a uh, pet cemetery. Yes, done. At, done deal. Totally. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, thank uh, you so much, sir. Thank you, guys. Yep. Holy shit! Thank you so much to Guillermo del Toro for joining us to talk a little bit about all corners of Stephen King. Uh, I, I I loved his insights. Every single time you'd be like, "Oh, I'm just going to casually drop some knowledge about Pet Cemetery or Salem's Lot." You know, it's kind of the ideal guest, and we were so thankful that he came on the show. <laughs> yeah, we were. Uh, very excited to get him before his press tour on Nightmare Alley starts. That comes out on December 17th, as I think we mentioned on the show. But um, we've been trying to get him on the show for some time. He agreed to it quite some time ago, and he's been busy making that movie and doing like a bazillion other things <laughs> besides. So we had to wait yeah. about, what, eight, nine months to make it happen. But just uh, about well worth the wait. And uh, we're going to we're going to hold his feet to the fire on coming back to do um, Pet Cemetery. I liked everything he had to say about that. And hopefully next time he comes back, we'll have even more time with him. Dig into that sour earth with him. <laughs> yes. Stonier than a man's hot. Well, I, I want to hear Guillermo's uh, uh, like main accent, his deep main accent. Do you think we can get him to do it next time? Oh, stonier than a man's heart. I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought you said. Stonier than a man is hot. And I was mm. like, I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around what that That's be. my, that's my beautiful main accent <laughs> via Judd Crandall. So, well, you got to start it. Uh, what was the phrase again? Stonier than a man's hot. Stonier than a man's hot. Honk, honk, kid. You're about to get hit by a, a truck of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway. he, he will be so confused. He will have no idea why we keep playing that sound when when he comes back. Oh but uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but play it, we will. The diehards know. I do want to say uh, real quick before we launch into the housekeeping stuff that mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Guillermo talking about Pet Cemetery, the part uh, where <laughs> where dude's wife has comes back and she's got the the dirt in her throat. He was <laughs> yeah. he was so <laughs> gleeful about that. Um, mm-hmm. I've listened back to this one a couple of times now, just the raw audio for it, and I think that's my favorite part 
overall. I oh, know this man, was an Scott, I forgot to tell you. I totally cut that whole that whole part out. Oh shit! Well, no, I didn't. I lied. I lied. Oh. It's all in there. I was gonna say that's a, a six second bonus episode for the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably talk about what's in the future because we got some really rad stuff coming up, and uh, that all starts. I guess this Friday with the Patreon episode, you want to talk about that first? Yes. Uh, this Friday, we are bringing our friend, Mr. Todd Gilchrist, back to the show. You'll remember him from a, uh, a couple of bonus episodes that we've done on the Patreon. He came in to uh, talk to us about um, various scores in Stephen King movies and also more recently came on to talk to us about the Maximum Overdrive trailer, which is, you know, pretty iconic in terms of Stephen King lore. It's the only Stephen King movie trailer with Stephen King in it. Of course, we're going to talk about it. But um, people really responded to that episode, it seemed like. And we wanted to bring him back for another one. And so we hatched this idea. We're going to bring Todd back this Friday to talk about the trailer for It Chapter One, which, you know, those of you who were paying attention around the time know was like a a, a record-shattering trailer debut uh racked up something like a quarter of a billion views in its first 36 hours and in addition to that was also provided us with our first real look you know uh, our first extensive look at uh footage from the film so we're going to discuss you know what our thoughts were about it chapter one as we were you know leading up to that release uh where we were at when the trailer dropped probably going to talk about pennywise in the pipe Mm -hmm. you know we'll uh we're going to we're going to talk at length about that single trailer and, and dissect it from every possible angle. So you've got a little bit more it programming coming to you if you are a uh, a Patreon. Well, not if you're a Patreon, but if you're a patron of the Kingcast Patreon. <laughs> no, exactly. And uh, in order to get access to that, make sure to head over to patreon.com slash the Kingcast mm-hmm. and sign up. And you will be glad you did, because we got so much stuff over there, including a recent commentary, which as of right now, you can only hear on the Patreon feed uh, with uh, Mike Flanagan doing the entire director's cut of Dr. Sleep. We have some other great Patreon stuff in the works, uh, including uh, our next audio commentary, which if uh, if it actually happens the way it's looking like it's going to happen, it's going to be something pretty special. So you are going to want to sign up. If, yeah, if you were excited about that Dr. Sleep commentary, you will be just as excited for this one. We are very excited. We have not recorded it yet. That's why we're hedging our bets a little bit. <laughs> and sometimes these things fall through. But uh, those of you who signed up last month, uh, stick around at least through the end of December because you're really going to want to hear this one. And maybe consider around sticking uh, sticking around for longer. I don't know. That's up to you. That's between you and your God and your <laughs> bank account and for, that's just one part of the truly awesome programming we've got coming up in december i want to be very careful sure. in what i say so eric doesn't get mad at me but um <laughs> yeah, we yeah have, scott does like like to like to uh tip the hat a lot and and i'm over here going don't tell him shit so we I got the, the two hat, polar extremes <laughs> um but we have we have five weeks to get through uh this december which means we have mm-hmm. five episodes in the main feed uh, we've already figured out what they're going to be. We know what our bonus episodes are going to be. And trust me when I say we are ending this year on a strong note. You guys are going to be very excited. For sure. And all that starts in the main feed next week with us returning to The Running Man with a very insightful, smart guest. The hints that we'll give you on this guest is that he is a screenwriter, 
Uh, he is, has a lot of thoughts and insight into the original Bachman book. This is a lot more Bachman book focused and less on the Schwarzenegger movie, mm-hmm. um, which is good because it seems like every time we talk about the running man on the show, we always kind of default over to uh, the Schwarzenegger movie. Right. Um, so this one's a little bit more of a hard look at the book and the kind of class struggles and the class warfare, you know, undercurrent to it, the social commentary of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the screenwriter is somebody who has delved into the world of Stephen King before. And I think that's uh, about all I can say without kind of tipping the hat. And, you know, and that is Scott Wampler's job. So <laughs> it's Jim Belushi. It's Jim Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> the, the renowned screenwriter Jim Belushi. Yes, <laughs> the star of Canine. He's here. He did, he did punch up on some Disney movies, so I think that's not true. I'm just making that up. Anyway, we got to wrap <laughs> this up. We've kept the yes. people long enough. Uh, thank for you for sure. being here, folks. If you're a first time listener of the show, which I we were expecting a lot of you to be today, um, <laughs> stick around. Check out some of our older stuff, and uh, thank you for being here. Yep. Thanks, guys. We'll see you guys next week for The Running Man and this Friday on our Patreon for that deep dive into that ginormous release of the It trailer from 2017. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>